0: You're listening to the MEX Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences.
1: Every time I get to a point where there is a little bit of stability in the group, I introduce a more complex profile or something that challenges ourselves in a way that we never have a status quo or a comfort zone. That is extremely important because it triggers creativity.
0: Hi, I'm Marek Pawlowski, founder of MEX. So, innovation. It really is one of those words that has become so ubiquitous, I think, as to be almost meaningless. It's overused, but underdone, you might say. But of course, companies that don't do it do run the risk of not being around for very much longer. And you could say the same of individuals. You know, If we don't, as individual practitioners, find ways to renew ourselves and challenge ourselves to be in situations and be around people experimenting with methods that are novel, then we too might find ourselves running out of runway in this industry that we work in, which is all about the new Now, Massimo Mercury, who you just heard in that opener, is the man tasked with helping a 300-year-old paint and chemicals company, Axo Noble, do innovation. You might wonder what a company that, among other things, sells deck paints for sailing boats is doing on the Meg's podcast, but I'm hoping that that's going to become apparent fairly quickly when you hear what they've been up to with Massimo. And the thing which interests me about this kind of work is really the twofold challenge. I mean, firstly, making it happen fast in big organizations, where sometimes you're talking about tens of thousands of employees, and perhaps even more importantly, keeping innovation grounded in the reality of customers' lives. So in my own advisory work, I've come across the same thing time and again. When initiatives get commissioned on the premise of innovation, it's often assumed that that will mean some big shiny new tech thing is predestined to emerge at the end of that process. Now that of course is a possible and legitimate outcome, but the greater challenge is really ensuring that whatever ultimately emerges has got a meaningful benefit for the people it's meant to serve and not simply this edifice to satisfy the CEO, the management team's desire for something that's gonna look impressive in the annual report. So Massimo himself, who was introduced to me by our long-term friend of the MEX Initiative, Patrizia Bertini, began in the tech industry. He was spending time in the early 90s at Apple and VPL Research in Silicon Valley at a time when they were pioneering things like speech interfaces and even virtual reality, some of the very early virtual reality stuff. But he's also spent time working for companies that operate cruise ships for the scientific institute CERN in Geneva, big tech giants like IBM. And we end up chatting about everything from blockchain to wearable technology on the high seas. Uh, and along the way, we also managed to touch on ice cream, Lego, uh, and all those other things that you need to get people doing innovative things in a customer-centered way. So I'm going to be back at the end of the podcast with an update for you on some of the events and the other things that we've got coming up in the MEX community. But for now, here's my chat with Massimo Mercury, Director of Digital Innovation and Strategy at Axo Noble. Here we go. Massimo, good morning. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join me on the show today.
1: Oh, thank you for inviting me.
0: So I wanted to start ironically by actually going a bit backwards. Um, Now, yeah, you know, you've been involved in this area for some years now, shall we say? And I'm curious, when did you feel that digital was going to be something that was going to be significant within your career?
1: Huh. Um, yeah, it's way, way back. Uh, I mean, you have to consider that. i started I started programming when we didn't have an operating system on personal computers. The personal computer concept was something that was just emerging at that time. Um, I so was what 16 sort of year-
0: era are we talking about here?
1: <laughs> I was 16 years old, and I'm, I'm now 52, so you can imagine. Uh, it's a little bit back. I started with a color computer from Radio Shack, which had the, the glorious amount of 4K of RAM. At that time, you would get manuals that would explain you the circuitry of the computer, so you would figure out how to program it so it would do anything. Yeah, just to get something on screen, you would have to program something. You didn't have something that started and, um, yeah, even, of course, if even at the time Unix already existed, but it was used only by very advanced organizations. We didn't have that luxury, of course, um, in the the beginning, of course, of the school times. Uh, But it evolved quickly. Um, In my study, digital architecture was part of it, although digital architecture at that time meant really the circuitry, how a computer is made. And I have to say that I have pivoted a few times. Um, Mostly I start on the technical part, then there is something that calls my attention, and then I change career into something a little bit else. So I moved very quickly from basic programming into computer graphics. And into visual representations and media, I was lucky enough as to be at the very beginning of virtual reality. Um, I did one internship in a lab in, in San Francisco, which was BPL Labs, with uh, John Lesseter. John Lesseter is the guy that then founded uh, uh, Pixar with uh, Steve Jobs uh, when Steve Jobs was not in Apple. And uh, we had people outside with signs that said, This technology is technology from the devil. You can imagine how far in time this is it, right? Uh, well, nowadays, virtual reality has become mainstream. It's been used for almost anything, Yeah, an augmented reality. So in the middle, I passed through manufacturing, pass through a few other uh, areas, uh, building cruise ships, for example, all the entertainment part and, uh, and the operations. So um, let's say digital has always been there. And nowadays, the word digital means a little bit more than what it meant in that time, because now digital has become part of our life. It, it is not anymore just having tools. I, I mean we are we have wearables that are telling us our heart rate, um, we have toys that if you throw a ball, you know the speed of the ball in the air. Um, I know how my cat is feeling, right? because I can even record his his frequencies in the meow and I have a little machine learning experiment that tells me if my cat is happy or not. So many people are doing these type of things, uh, yeah? And uh, and we are we see an emergence of skills, especially in the new generation, the latest that are coming out of school now, the, the 20, 25 years old, that they're capable to do things that we would only dream 30 years ago.
0: So that's a, an interesting um, sort of divergence there, if you like, as you say you know, people who are coming out of their education now and getting into the workforce, um, they have that capacity perhaps to think in, in new ways, having grown up in an environment where digital has always been integral and embedded. But what do you think that longer, deeper background that you have had gives you? Uh, in terms of being able to see a slightly different perspective on the role of digital. When you've come from an environment where literally when you were starting to use digital meant understanding the circuitry uh, right through to a point now where the kind of toolkits that are available allow people to get started very rapidly. What do you think you gain from having that greater uh, degree of of depth and understanding of of where we've been previously with digital?
1: I wish I was born tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because imagine the kind of tools I will have in 10 years. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, there's a little bit of that, of course. Um, well, uh, you know, I, I did pass through a, a time when I had a little bit of arrogance, and, uh, and I said, well, knowing what happens inside of a circuit actually helps me understand more or deeper what happens in a device, uh, but then I, I, I think the more and more I go on, and I think the secret is in the mix of people you use, and is in the dynamics that you create in, in the people, because skills evolve, yeah? Arguably, what I have done in programming is completely obsolete nowadays. Um, and, uh, and let's say I stopped uh, programming just after learning Java uh, and, and doing object programming. So I'm already in the old age, yeah? because nowadays you have meta-languages that allows you to integrate uh, multiple pieces of code, even SAP, which used to be that type of Stone Age uh, type of environment. I recently saw the new tools of SAP in the cloud, and you're capable just to do kind of a flow chart, and you can integrate any type of code or any type of call from any tools, and you just create a new process out of the blue. So nowadays you have the tools to do things really, really fast. The secret to get into productive stuff, into stuff that can have an impact, is into mixing the right type of people, very diverse groups, and create the dynamic that they have the psychological safety to try out, to try out things and of course eliminate completely the concept, you know, there's a lot of this hype about uh, let's embrace failure and all that, what I say is let's embrace learning. You have to be conscious that you're always learning. It doesn't matter how old you are, it doesn't matter what you've done before. There's always somebody who knows a little bit more than you on something else.
0: Well, that's an interesting way of, of looking at it. And I think, you know, when I look back over your career history and, you know, from where you are today with you know, a 300 year old. You know, very well established large corporate you know going back to some of those experimental things you're doing with virtual reality in the valley way back in in the day there's one pretty strong trend line which stands out to all of it which is there seems to be this trend towards facilitation Evangelism, listening to people, catalyzing people uh, around particular issues, which seems to be the, the consistent threat to, to many of the things that, that you have done over the course of the years. Uh, and, you know, when I think about how that relates to, you know, some of the activities that we see within the MEX community, for instance, yeah, that's one of the real uh, essential design skills is being able to listen, being able to then synthesize, you know, what you've heard into something useful and get people to, to take action around it. But, you know, I, I'm wondering for you, was there a particular role over the years where you started to feel like that was emerging as being one of your, your key skills versus where you'd come from in education?
1: Probably the the first time I became an executive because I, I pivoted my career a few times, so I've been up and down in, in different ways. And, and just before restarting as a technician, I had an, almost a burnout. Uh, it was the time when I became a manager of people the first time. I was in the electronic manufacturing industry. And I had a pretty good operation, very, very nicely neat operation, uh, supporting IT for, for several factories and uh, thousands of people working in, in a very high-paced uh, electronic manufacturing Environment, um, as many technical, as many people who have a technical background, I made the mistake of becoming a micromanager, and I tried to establish perfection by by what I thought perfection was. So I became a pain in the ass. I'm sorry if I can I say that in the in the podcast. Uh, it, it all
0: goes on the next podcast.
1: Okay, good. <laughs> I became that uh, for most of my people. Of course, they were excellent. They achieved fantastic things, and we achieved fantastic things. But I almost died in the process, so it it really became a health issue. And arguably, I could have achieved more if I had allowed them to think more by themselves and giving them the empowerment to invent their own way. Because you know, people will always try to do the best they can. And this is something that technical managers usually forget. So nowadays what I do is the opposite. I am creating a small group, uh, which uh, I call it the mutants, uh, because I'm really collecting very special profiles. And, and note the word collecting, not selecting. Um, where every time I get to a point where there is a little bit of stability in the group, I introduce a more complex profile or something that challenges ourselves in a way that we never have a status quo or a comfort zone. Th- that is extremely important because it triggers creativity. So, of course, into these profiles you have highly technical people. Um, you, you have Well, I have everything from psychologists to, to coders uh, uh, to game developers. Um, and, uh, and it's the mix. Yeah, it's, it's a good cocktail what you have to create. And you just shake it up and let them lose and something will come up. Uh, so I, I understand this sounds a little bit uh, uh, fuzzy, and the truth is that it is, uh, but then you support it with very disciplined methodologies, uh, like design thinking, for example, many people think design thinking is a very loose thing. But in reality, if you apply design thinking well, you have a few steps that you have to do in a very rigorous way, and you have to be very disciplined. And the same happens with Agile and with Scrum so you you mix those things and uh, and the magic happens, but it happens by the people, not by the tools so
0: how do you go about establishing a mandate to do something like that within what by your own description, you know is quite a traditional well established company with three hundred years of of history behind it uh, because yeah, I think there are plenty of organizations where the prospect of something which has that sense of fuzziness which has that uh, sense of the the unknown around it um, may actually never get off the ground you know what compels an organization like axo noble to bring in someone like you to try and establish a program like this
1: um mix of things um, it is really it was really at the core of some strategic dialogue that happened in the last few years um the world has become more and more digital uh, arguably the, the digital envelope of a product <clears throat> at this moment in, in many instances has more value than the product itself. And uh, hey, make no mistake, we sell paint, yeah? We sell paint and coating. So we are masters of colors and, and covering and uh, creating beautiful representations when somebody uses our products. Um, but every market has a limit. So if you want to grow a market, you can either grow by buying other companies who have more segments of the same market, or a larger share of pie, or you can invent new products that open up new markets, or you get into utilizing what the new behavior of the market has, and then you get into the digital area. So it's true, you can still keep selling cans of paint, but you can also sell the knowledge that you have from 300 years of selling cans of paints. And in some cases we have data which is almost a century old on some type of products. So we really know how a product behaves depending on the weather, depending on the conditions of the surface, depending on the usage. So we are beginning to see business models where we can provide advice to customers who maybe are not even our customers, but they need to have more knowledge on how to do preventive maintenance uh, how to make sure that they have a better performance when they use certain products and it's not necessarily our products but any other thing so we are we're actually looking at the possibilities that we can have market segments that did not exist at all before the digital era it's completely new
0: so has it all been smooth sailing since you started the role because no. <laughs> you know you're, you're going into as you say an environment which Know maybe receptive to that. Maybe there's a uh, a stronger mandate than you could expect at other companies. But as you say, you're still dealing with a pretty large organization with some some traditions. Have you encountered challenges along the way? It's
1: difficult to think what I have not encountered
0: yet, Uh, because so far
1: I think I think I've gone through the whole list. When when you read those articles, you know, like on LinkedIn or in blogs, and and they say how can corporate kill innovation by design. I think the list is. Pretty much complete, um, but I have to say that when when business owners or product owners, uh, you know, people who actually deal directly with the, with the customers with the market, when they start seeing the results of having a user interface that is intuitive and that is easy, and then they see that more people are connecting, um, and uh, that we create a different experience. Or that we make the job easy for our distributors, they immediately see an advantage. Yeah. I'm, I'm not, uh, you have to consider that we started a year ago. So I'm not there, I'm not yet at the point where we are creating a completely new value out of the blue. Yeah. Everything is cooking, and arguably, I cannot, of course, explain everything because there's a lot of confidential stuff. Uh, but what I can tell you is that the major, the dramatic change that we did is in the way we do the ideation and the prototyping phases. Because what happens is that normally these big companies, they have lots of suppliers. And suppliers, they get you into workshops where you do brainstorms. And when you find out what, what could be opportunities, easy wins, you know, the famous quadrant of whatever is uh, easy to do and adds the most value, let's try to shoot at that. And then they send back the people into following up and eventually become projects for the same suppliers. The difference here is that we are doing it in-house, so we have the luxury of not stopping at the ideation only. But the the people who come and and plays with us, yeah, the people who come and brainstorm with us, they come out with at least a paper prototype, if not, <clears throat> if not something that already works, something that is already a click through of an interface, or eventually even a, a draft of a mathematical model, if it is the case of big data. Um, so we go to the next step, which is not only uh, the brainstorming and the ideation, but is also making tangible the technology. So when we started talking about blockchain, uh, for example, uh, we said, well, either we can talk about blockchain and have a lot of brainstorms about it, or we can just do it. And that's how we created the droplets. So right now, Axel Nobel has his own version of blockchain. Which is called the droplets, which is uh, in an experimental phase. <clears throat> experimental means that we have not made it public yet. So you're actually the first one outside of the company of knowing that we have droplets, uh, and um, and we think about using them in customer loyalty applications, um, improving our supply chain. You know, allow full traceability and all and all the advantages that blockchain can have. Yeah. Uh, of course, this is not another version of Bitcoin. We are not planning to use it as a currency uh, but it has so many other types of application cryptography and cryptocurrency that uh, that uh, I'm sure you will interview other experts that can explain all that
0: so without um, asking you to share too much of the secret source um can you tell me a little bit more about how this droplets project came to fruition and you know in particular, I'm interested in uh, how important that idea of, of speed was, which I think you're alluding to there, you know that, that speed of being able to get to something tangible rather than just something which is still in the, the theoretical. How did that influence the project?
1: Right. It, it ties into, into two parts, into the speed indeed, because speed is incredibly important. Um, and the second one is into lowering the threshold for the adoption of digital technologies, in, in a company such as uh, such as a big corporate like this, which refers to the previous question you had. Um, <clears throat> so the the way we enable learning is through social learning inside of the company. So what we do, we find the hero. The hero is that person that already has a hobby or just experimenting, had an idea and is playing with the digital technology. And we found the hero, the hero, was playing with, with uh, uh, blockchain a little bit, you know. was uh, going to meetups and all that. So we, we started involving this person, enabling this person to say, okay, what are we going to do? You know, very fast, in, in a matter of two weeks, w- uh, we said, okay, these are the possibilities that we see and that we see other companies are using blockchain. Uh, so how do we end up making our own? And uh, there's, a, there's a platform, there, there are several platforms available where you can create your own cryptocurrency, or your own tokens, uh, depending on the type of users you want to do. Um, in one day, uh, the tokens were created, 100 million of them. Uh, in uh, four days, we had our own server that would administer the transactions. And we did it not with the traditional suppliers, because speed speed is incredibly important, as you said. Um, Of course, I talked to to some of the large, very large and famous suppliers in the world, and, and they all come back saying, well, in two or three months, we could have a roadmap for you. To tell you the truth, I'm absolutely not interested in a roadmap, because what I want is that the company learns very, very fast on how to leverage on these new technologies. So what I wanted is to have a technology that everybody can touch and can use. So I went to a small shop, and the small shop which is not that small it's still a company of 100 people Uh, it's still less than 40,000 of course Um, this company of 100 people in 4 days they gave us a platforms uh, and we already have a web wallet where we can get our droplets we have the QR codes, we can create QR codes for traceability, I can stick a QR code at the bottom of a can of paint and I can use that bit of cryptocurrency to validate if that kind of paint is original or a counterfeit already. So this all was done in a matter, a total of three weeks. So by the time we had that, then we create, we made our first meetup in-house. We invited people from everywhere, from human resources, from finance, from marketing, uh, from everywhere you can imagine. Try to keep the IT population low because otherwise you have too many technical people. And uh, after a couple of, uh, of presentations in the format of a meetup, you know, at the beginning you have presentations, then you have brainstorm and, and conversations. Suddenly we had a big QR code on screen and we told everybody just scan it with your phone. So at that point you had, for example, a financial controller which had 100 droplets on his phone. And, and of course, w- with all the things that you hear on the internet and all the gossip that exists around Bitcoin, Some people were even afraid before. You know, is my phone going to explode because I have a cryptocurrency on it? And of course, I've been a bit sarcastic, but that's the way I am. Um, And uh, and then, no, you had all these people with their phones and they started exchanging droplets between each other. So the magic of having something so tangible and, and without any risk opens up the, the, the mind of the population. So suddenly all these people who participated in the meetup, they realized that it's not dangerous, <laughs> that it's easy because they could exchange between each other and basically it demystifies the technology. So we plan to do the same with all the types of technology. We plan to do the same with robotics, we plan to do the same with drones uh, because we see it's working. We just did another one with data and so uh, because big data of course is high on the radar of everybody and we had a beautiful response uh, actually from the population because now people see that everybody can play with data you do not need to be a guru you do not need to be a data scientist to to understand what are the effects of knowing something or not knowing something
0: well and potentially uh, that's the path which leads to the next generation of heroes you know the the same way you were describing the role of the person who is experimenting with the blockchain ideas in their spare time within the company their inspiration had to have come from somewhere maybe it came from an external meetup or an external source but when you start doing those things internally as part of the organization you know, maybe that finance director that you mentioned now is the one who is inspired to go off and start looking into this of their own accord and At the very least, I guess you could expect that they're going to start to pass on some of those learnings, some of those things which demystify the experience to their own internal departments. So maybe you start to smooth the road to to wider adoption within the organization by encouraging that sort of active hands-on learning. That's
1: precisely what is happening. Suddenly we have user groups. So we have our own internal social media, and then suddenly we have user groups around blockchain, user groups around the Internet of Things, And there are people experimenting with uh, kits, which are like uh, little toys, you know, like you can can build on your own experiment. And now we have uh, several requests to have uh, sandboxes to play with data. So it's it's beginning to happen. So, uh, Of course, I cannot predict how far we will go and what will be the impact in the future. But what I see is that already in the initiatives that they come up with, because these initiatives are not coming from IT, but are coming from the people who really are directly connected with the part of the business that has either the problem or the opportunity, they look very promising. They, they look like initiatives that can transform the way the business operates. Yeah, uh, well, of course we have we have others which which uh, which are probably more popularized, like uh, like the one we did with SAP on the Volvo Ocean Race. I don't know if you're aware of it.
0: No, I'd love to learn more about it.
1: Okay, so uh, la- last year, uh, Axonable has uh, participated in the in the Volvo Ocean Race, sponsoring one of the one of the boats. Basically, we have a boat in the Volvo Ocean Race, which is a race around the globe. Uh, it's already more than halfway now, <clears throat> and. And last year, we wanted to give an advantage, a digital advantage to the race. Now there are very strict rules. you cannot communicate with the ships where the ship is sailing, and this is a sailboat yeah is a, is a very high performance sailboat, and which is at sea sometimes a few weeks depending on the on the on the stage of the race. so we said okay how how about we put wearables on the crew and we start measuring. The stress and the fitness of the crew, and then we cross-relate that data <clears throat> with the meteorological data and the conditions of the sea. So the skipper of the ship can actually decide if he would be willing to take an easier or a more difficult route for the sake of uh, gaining more time or taking and uh, getting an advantage of others. So, uh, yeah, basically, we ended up having uh, an expert system which is learning on the way, by the way. Um, and, um, and we created the experiment. Um, so luckily there was a nice genius inside of SAP. Uh, SAP teamed up with Axonobel. Um, the whole SAP system is in a Raspberry Pi. So the whole computer of the ship is the size of a, pa- of a pack of cigarettes. And just to give you an idea of the size, uh, which costs 50 euro. Yeah. And so that's the whole computer. And it runs SAP inside and it runs Leonardo, which is the, 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 the machine learning and, and one of the big data systems that SAP has. And, and the, the crew has, uh, of course, wristbands, but also a little device that put on the ear for three minutes when they go to rest, in the resting time, and we measure the heartbeats. It turns out that the distance between heartbeats, and I'm talking milliseconds, is extremely important to determine the fitness and the stress level of a person. Well, many people believe that the heart has to be constant. It's not true. The heart has to be variable. Variable within a certain range, of course, yeah? <laughs> so if, in, if the heart becomes too constant in the heartbeats, the distance between heartbeats, it means that you are either stressed or not well fed or tired. So by measuring three minutes, when one of the, when when the crew goes to goes to rest between shifts we we pass this data through mobile phones and then into the raspberry pi so you can imagine how experimental this is uh, this is really skunk work yeah you you could do it literally in a garage
0: yeah and in a very harsh environment as well i mean when you're thinking about something like the volvo ocean race and those boats going down into the, the southern ocean you know that's a pretty extreme environment in which to be experimenting with this kind of technology
1: oh yeah and everything has happened including a broken mast uh, everything has happened during the race uh, but uh, we are doing good. We're actually doing good. And every stage of the race, when they stop in a port, because they stop usually for a week or two in between every stage, yeah? and, uh, because they have, to, they have to feed again. <laughs> of course, they lose a lot of weight. Eh? and it's, it's extremely taxing of the people. Um, so when, when they're stopped in a port, we collect the data from the Raspberry Pi, we feed it back into Leonardo, and then we update the model, the mathematical model. So every time... We have a better performance or we can experiment with different variables. So if we can do this, if we we can help a small crew in a very little boat in the middle of the ocean in performing better, imagine when we apply this knowledge that we are learning now, when we apply to our supply chain, to our logistics, to the distribution of our products, or even to what happens in the factories. We can have people who are better performance and less quality issues because We can identify when they are at the top of of their capacity and otherwise they can do other tasks.
0: Absolutely. And I think those sort of um, tangential explorations, which then can be linked back to the specifics of of what the company is taking on day to day as a challenge, uh, how breakthroughs are made. Um, But I guess maybe... You know, I'm coming from a place um, having had the experience within the world of the the MEX community and so on and similar sort of uh, background experiences to the ones that you've come from where uh, we can understand the value of those things and we can make the case for having those kind of explorations. Uh, But what I'm curious about in relation to your role in particular and where it sits within the organization is... uh, how much of it comes down to being able to tell a compelling story around those which helps i guess essentially the people who are your your internal supporters your internal sponsors to be able to justify having those kind of experimentations, you know, because I, I can see the tangents here. I know uh, Axo Noble has uh, a marine paints business, you yeah, know, with the the international paints, for instance, and the involvement with the the, the world of yachting is a, a natural kind of link there. But yeah. presumably there must be a, an ongoing challenge to uh, be able to say, you know, this is why we are doing these things. And this is where it could lead for us as a company to be able to continue to have the mandate uh, to do that kind of experimental uh, innovation
1: um i have cross feelings when i hear that to tell you the truth because the more you try to link it to a very tangible uh, a driver or a very tangible reason you risk biasing the experimentation yeah so uh, there, there you have different opinions at the very high level arguably if a company is not capable to survive in a digital world Will go bankrupt ga- bankrupt very easily because there will be other players who are better are, are using the technologies or dealing with the with the new market. That's at a very high level. But on, on a more tangible point of view, even if you have somebody who is very, very traditional, it is it is most of the time um, easy to find a link either into increased profit from sales or a better operational cash flow. Uh, and, and both things, of course, contribute to the success of the company. And, and those, I would say, those are our, our key priorities. Yeah, the meaning that we want a company that is capable to profit better uh, from what they sell and from the operations. Uh, at the same time, there is a more intangible effect still very valuable, uh, which is on the sustainability of the company, because you improve your operations and uh, you're, you're capable to waste less energy, uh, do things better with less cost, etc. Um, and even more intangible sometimes is the brand image, the presence that you might have in a market. In the, the, the fact that we have the visualizer tool, yeah, the, from, from your iPhone, with the visualizer tool, you can actually choose a color and point at the wall and then you take the snapshot of that wall and then suddenly everything that has the same color of the wall, you can see it painted with the with the color you chose. And it, it, I know it looks like a gimmick because at the end of the day, it's just an, an augmented reality uh, game. And, and it goes as far as probably tell you what, what color you chose and what is the code for that so you could go and buy it in a store. But I think it's more important the fact that you keep a connection with the public. So for me, those things are even more important than money. Uh, Although, of course, I'm in the innovation side, yes, so I'm pretty sure that if you ask uh, somebody from finance or somebody from sales, uh, they have a different opinion and they are right as well. Thing is, they will sell more if we have a better presence and we can profit better if we have smoother operations which are smarter. So, uh, so for example, just creating a dashboard that gives the operators in a manufacturing plant what is the current status of the machines and the, and the quality they can expect from a batch of product is already taking away all the guesswork. So the decisions they take have less uncertainty and at the end of the day, your quality is better, you waste less material, you can deliver better what the customer is expecting. So at the bottom line, the, the good old business rules still apply. And you cannot forget that. You, you cannot just create an innovation group that, oh yeah, let's do whatever, you know. Because in that case, what you're doing, you're doing uh, is science, is experimentation just for the sake of it, just for the sake of learning. is also valid, but you cannot do that in a corporation. You have to be realistic. It's a business.
0: And how much of a, a role do you think that link with the the reality of end customers, end users of the products plays in guiding that. Because from some of the things you described there, it sounds like, you know, that's quite a, a grounding principle that y- you can experiment, you can go off into the, the intangible uh, and do some brave things. But it it sounds to me like all along the way, there are hints that you're trying to keep it grounded in the reality of, of what does this solve for our, our users, our customers, be those uh, internal customers or, or be those people who are buying cans of paint, uh, you know, at the the very end of the, the, the customer chain there.
1: mm mm-hmm. ha ah, as uh, I think is a dilemma for most of the companies, yeah? How much do you want to allow yourself to, to experiment and learn without without burning uh, precious uh, energy and precious budget, of course? Uh, and at the same time, you have to demonstrate uh, results. Uh, so I would say that this type of environment is one of the most difficult for uh, for innovation because uh, you become an intrapreneur, yeah? And uh, sometimes you act almost as a, as a non-profit inside of the company because you have to take up initiatives and just help them so they can discover if there is a business case behind. And many times these things don't have a budget attached. So there is a lot of, a lot of that in it. So you have to balance very carefully and make sure that you do not waste precious resources. Uh, something else that we have applied on purpose is that we established our operation outside of the company. So we created, we created a space on the edge between the, the, the company boundaries and the outside market, and we did this by establishing the space in, a, in an ecosystem where there are many small startups. is the, the B building in Amsterdam. It's, it's called B building businesses, and um, we are in one of the three buildings there. And it's, it's great because there you have the contact with very small companies. Sometimes it's two students, you know, that they have a startup and they can be much faster than the traditional uh, big uh, suppliers or traditional industrial uh, industrial service providers. Um, but you can't be too far. <laughs> so you still have to be close enough to the corporate environment so you can land what you do in the proper way. Uh, so... Um, I I think the trick is not not to get stuck being a purist in the methodologies you use. Because it's true we want to be agile. Agile will take you to some point. But there is a point in in business when you want to scale up that you need to get back into more traditional ways of doing projects. Uh, Some time for the propagation of a service, for the replication because there is, there is a very big difference between doing one thing once and creating a minimum viable product, which is the first prototype that your customer is willing to pay for, but then it's only one customer. What if you want to have 1,000 customers, 10,000, 10 million customers? And then, then you need to standardize and you need to replicate. So you can't do both from the same place. I assessed the initial part of the funnel, all the way up to minimum viable product and then incubate whatever will become a digital service for the business. But then you have to pass the ball to different types of of the organization where you have the capabilities of IT, uh, where you have the global business services and and those parts that are capable to provide the critical mass and and the methodologies, the project management, portfolio management that is required than to orchestrate the, the global deployment. Otherwise you will never reach the complete market.
0: Uh, absolutely. And I guess there's that ongoing challenge as well throughout that process of you know deciding how you balance the the amplification of the, the voice of the, the user and the customer throughout that you know there are times when you need to be able to to experiment to think creatively uh, in a way which maybe takes you um, further from where people uh, end users may be able to imagine today uh, and allows you to stretch things um, and then you know there are times when you want to get closer to that and understand you know how you show a very clear path from where people's thinking is today to to where they could go in the, the future with it. So I could, I could imagine that must be a, a tricky ongoing balance to you know think about the methods that you use for that kind of amplification of the user voice, how, how you make them present within innovation sessions, uh, while at the same time giving yourself the, the scope to think creatively.
1: Yeah, it's almost counterintuitive sometimes. And, and there's a lot of, you are creating conflict by design and, and that conflict, precisely the friction is what, triggers the right level of creativity and, and thinking out of the box. Because of course, you have, you have the creative group. Yeah? I, don't, I don't have any specific specialist in, in what the business already know how to do. So to give you an example, I don't have any data scientist in my group. But I do have a data artist. And the data artist is that person that is capable to visualize data in a way that it doesn't look like data. That it looks like something that the common man on the street will understand. Yeah, um, So, of course, you want to do extraordinary things, and then the, f- the first thing that I would recommend anybody who wants to embark in this type of, uh, of ventures is remove the extra budget. Make it difficult, because the more difficult you make it for people to accomplish something, the more creative they will get into finding special or really out-of-the-box solutions. It happens to all of us. So I know I know it sounds a little bit like some people right now are, are probably thinking, how do I kill this guy? Because they are hoping to get some budget for innovation in some company. But to tell you the truth, the less budget you get, the best you will do.
0: Absolutely. Necessity yeah. <laughs> is the mother of invention and all that. I mean, I know from uh, my own experience with, uh, for instance, the MEX conferences that we've run over the years, quite often some of the most creative ideas and the ideas which then go on to be most valuable in a tangible sense of the the overall sort of output the ideas of the conference which we then record and analyze at a later stage they come from very low-fi, low-budget exercises where maybe we bring in uh, some modeling tools of some kind. You know, maybe we just give people uh, a change of environment, which essentially costs nothing other than people spending a few calories to get up and walk outside the building. Uh, those <laughs> things can, can often have the most powerful effect on getting people to think in ways that they might not otherwise ha- have the chance to do in their day job. So it, it for sure is a really compelling... um strategy to use. It makes me think also as well, I'm um, thinking back, our introduction originally was through Patrizia Bertini, who's you know a longtime friend of the, the MEX initiative. Uh, many of our listeners will know her from the Lego Serious Play sessions that she's run uh, for us. And I, I seem to recall that she mentioned uh, you also have, have had some experience with this uh, Lego Serious Play facilitation, where you're using something as basic as Lego building blocks to help people think in a, a different way about problems. Uh, is this something which you've um, used in your, your current role?
1: In the, in the Edge, which is the, the digital Edge, which is the name of the space that we have created, uh, we have close to 35 or 40 kilos of Lego. Uh, it's one of the main tools.
0: Okay, now, now I'm a little bit jealous. I think uh, I, I need to come and spend some time in this space. I don't have
1: the robotic kit yet, but it's in the list. It's in the list. Uh, uh, so far, I have very simple... Bricks. Yeah, it's the very simple kits for the from the methodology of Lego Serious Play. I've been practicing it since 2012. I've used it at CERN, in the in the Idea Square space uh, with the exercises with the students, and that's where I started mixing Lego Serious Play with design thinking, uh, and that came out pretty good. Uh, recently, uh, there's a good friend Fabrizio Faraco from Italy, which um, he has. He has done also Lego Series Play for Scrum, um, and there are other people experimenting with Agile. I use it mostly uh, when it's the first time that you have people from um, different origins and different disciplines, and you want them to understand each other. It is, it's a great tool to connect the brains, uh, and it really works. Uh, because there is, a, there is a point after you facilitate for a while that they start building their own models, what they think, uh, uh, you know, you make them build even dummy things sometimes like uh, the nightmare mother-in-law, Yeah, um, But I've also had uh, uh, dynamics with uh, suppliers who need to collaborate between each other because there is an end-to-end service and you need multiple suppliers to collaborate and the customer as well. Uh, and then you make them build the customer from hell or the supplier from hell, or the project from hell. And in that way, which is a playful way, the people speak about the model they built. They don't speak about the other person. So it diffuses the potential conflict that would emerge if they say what they really think.
0: Yeah, because It's then, really yeah. fascinating, I think, watching a skilled facilitator in that, that art uh, and keeping people strictly to that rule of speaking to the model rather than to the wider issues that the the model is is describing. And as you say, how that enables very diverse disparate groups to have conversations that they might not otherwise have. And I I will freely admit, I went into my first Lego serious play facilitation, which uh, Patrizia ran, how, how I actually met Patrizia in the first place. As a total skeptic, I I attended the (laughs) session because I saw the information and having spent a lot of time with Lego in my childhood, I thought, you know, I've got to go along and see what this crazy idea is because I couldn't believe that it would work. And I emerged two hours later from that session, completely converted to the methodology to the extent that we then asked uh, Patrizia to come along and and run a session at one of our MEX conferences where she both uh, facilitated a a Lego serious play session while at the same time describing some of the ways in which the methodology worked so that the design practitioners within the room could see a little bit of the the cause and effect, uh, you know, live at at the time. And uh, it's something which has stuck with me and that, you know, we've used several times since and I would like to continue using in the future because it really has a, a powerful effect on getting people both to think imaginatively while also being able to address some of those kind of tangible issues which they might not otherwise get to talk about because of politics or because of human nature and that, that reluctance to address the things that really matter sometimes.
1: Oh yeah, the famous elephants in the room right? That's why in the boxes of Lego series play you have a few elephants. So you have <laughs> them directly there, you know just use them. But you were lucky. Because, because having Patricia as a facilitator is, is not something you get every day, yeah? I mean, there are thousands of facilitators already in the world, uh, but those that are really, really, uh, that can really create the impact and can really uh, create the effect that people like Patricia does, for example, is because they already had knowledge and experience of different areas, and they are using the, the, the serious play methodology as a tool to, to really, yeah, as a tool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, think, think, let's simplify. Let's use, let's use again the method of simplification. Everybody can handle a screwdriver in theory, right? Okay, but not everybody can handle a screwdriver without damaging it. Most of the screwdrivers you will see in everybody's houses, the tip of the screwdrivers is a little bit damaged. And that's because they didn't know really how to turn the screw properly. And when you have people like Patricia facilitating, you have the people who know how to handle the screwdriver. They know how to handle the tool in the proper way. And then you get this magic effect like you have groups that have worked together for like, I don't know, 10 years. And when they are playing with the, with the models of the Lego, then they look at each other like, Wow, I thought we were thinking about the same thing. And I thought it looked the same for both of us. You know, that they they get to those moments of realization that they can still do better than what they were before. But that that's the magic of the method really so it's a combination yeah the facilitator and the methodology
0: well i mean going back to the point that you made earlier about the importance of speed when you are going through these kind of corporate innovation activities that was one of the things which always struck me uh in going through those kind of lego serious play sessions that we've done with patrizia over the years at mex is it very rapidly allows people to abandon the constraints of their day-to-day work identities, which can often get in the way of being able to think more creatively, being able to allow themselves to explore things that they might not otherwise do. Because in some ways, the methodology seems to to focus on in those initial stages, uh, allowing people to step back from the usual thing of, you know, I am so-and-so, this is what I have done in my career, this is why I'm here. As soon as people have stated that, which often, you know, in brainstorming activities, the first thing people do is go around the room and have everyone explain who they are and why they Oh, come. that's
1: horrible. You yeah. know, that
0: straight away you have put constraints around what you can achieve within that session because people have bought their, uh, their perceived identity with them. Whereas something like this methodology allows you to distill a lot of those things uh, into the, the Lego model and allow you to express it in creative ways that, that don't uh, constrain the, the thinking.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And almost everybody forgets that the first, the first step of a brainstorm is to distract the people, actually. That's the first thing you should do, instead of focusing them in who am I. Yeah. (laughs) It should be really distract them, make them forget where they're coming from, make them forget what are the issues at hand that they had, I don't know, the children that needed to go to school, or the previous meeting where they were, or coffee that was not good in that morning, whatever, you know, traffic and just distract them and get them out of uh, of that state of mind because otherwise the brainstorm will never be successful
0: yeah it's that power of of embodied cognition you know when you get the the body doing some things uh to distract itself you know if it's something as simple as putting some lego bricks together with your hand or for some people it can be you know going out for a, a walk in the countryside you know just that movement is enough to distract the brain to be able to to think in ways that you don't often and allow yourself to think. Uh, but, you know, obviously in a role like yours, uh, I guess, you know, there is the responsibility on you to be able to facilitate those activities for others. You know, part of your mandate is is getting the company to think more creatively. But what about for you personally? You know, you have Italian heritage. You've spent time in Mexico. You've spent time in the US. You've worked all over Europe. You're now working for a company which has got a, a Dutch uh, headquarters yeah, has that kind of global perspective um, given you um, some influences on where you look for your own inspirations, where you look for examples of good design to keep your own creative spirit uh, strong?
1: Yeah, <clears throat> I think the most powerful was the time when I worked with uh, in cruise ships, uh, building ships, and and uh, yeah, when I was an officer on board, uh, because there not only you work with a lot of nationalities but you also realize in an environment, in an ecosystem which is a closed ecosystem like like a cruise ship, uh, you realize that everybody is just equally important. So the captain is just as important as the guy who is pulling the ropes when you're mooring the ships to the dock. And when when you realize that, um, you stop having the typical hierarchical limitations First of all, you start communicating with anyone at any level in the same way, or at least with the same naturality, yeah? Although there might be difference in the language because of the knowledge of the different people, but, but we're all human beings, yeah? We all need a toilet every day, isn't it? So as long as somebody doesn't come up with, that doesn't need to breathe, to eat, or the rest, uh, then we are all the same. And this is, I think, is, is primordial, to enable the the psychological safety for people to be creative. Uh, The other part is the mix. The the more mix you have, uh, the the better you do. So uh, in in my small team, I have uh, a Chinese, uh, Taiwanese, uh, one Latin American, uh, another one which is half Latin American and and half European. Of course, there is me, um, a few from the UK. Um a Russian. So it's, it's about the diversity to the extreme. If you want creativity and you want and, and you want really to explore and have those solutions that nobody else can facilitate, you need diversity to the extreme. And of course you need to lower the diversity as you go into into serialized job, yeah. So once you go into different phases of a project, when you have already a prototype that you want to deploy, then you need a more uniform type of population. It's similar, it's similar to what happens with the military when you have the Navy SEALs, yeah, which is usually very small groups of uh, very skilled but, uh, but specialized people, you know, um, and then they don't even have a hierarchy, but the one that knows about the mission or about the content of the mission is the one that takes charge of that mission for that specific task and And versus having the big platoon of the infantry that is going to um, I don't know, on a mission for rescue when you have the earthquake in uh, Haiti, yeah, that that you need two thousand people who all have a similar type of mandate and all have a similar type of behavior that they go and try to help and rescue those who are the victims of the earthquake. so that this this is this is what you have to handle a little bit. It gives you speed, having more diversity, that's for sure. And for me, it gives me inspiration. Over, over, the, years, uh, over the years, I think I would never work again in a very serialized, very uh, large type of uh, department, but I prefer more and more small groups, small teams, uh, very dynamic, uh, people who can give you surprises, uh, people who can make you feel even uncomfortable because of how they think. Because that's when you come out of your own comfort zone. You know, so if, if you dare to do that, you're up for a good ride in those environments.
0: Well, as you say, that that's a key thing with it is daring to do it, having the courage to put yourself in a group of people that maybe you wouldn't normally be interacting mm-hmm. with, ha- having the courage to to listen to those ideas, to, to take them on board and to try some different things. And certainly it echoes the experiences that we've had with the MEX Initiative over the years. You know, When I think about... I guess now literally hundreds of different workshops that we've run at the various conferences that we've had over the history of the initiative. Um, The workshops where you're able to bring together the most diverse group of people you know, whether it be diversity in terms of... It's
1: not always easy, huh?
0: <laughs> it, it, it's not always easy. And it takes skilled facilitation as well. We've been lucky to have some, uh, you know, very experienced facilitators who have volunteered to run those sessions for us and, and to to try and get the best out of those diverse groups of people. But when you persevere with it, the results uh, are hugely um, compelling, you know, whether it's people who are coming from, say, very different stages of their career, you know, putting someone who is just graduated as a student with someone who is 20, years into a career and is now a senior executive, or putting someone from one part of the world with someone from another part of the world, or someone who's a day-to-day practitioner of uh, UI design with someone who's from a more theoretical, academic background, Uh, those kind of interconnections almost always lead to to magic of some kind. But it it takes a little courage on the part of the people who are participating to throw themselves into something like that and see where it takes them.
1: And it takes courage also from your side, because sometimes... I, I mean, I, I think it was yesterday that I, I asked one of the guys, please remind me to see if I can find a way to strangle this other one. Yeah, of course it's a joke, uh, but it also shows that also for me is, even if I try to have that diversity, sometimes I find it a challenging, you know, like, all right, now I have to be a victim of my own doing, and eventually something good will come out. So you, you, you need to have a very light attitude in those cases, Otherwise, it becomes frustrating.
0: Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. There have been plenty of those moments over the years at the <laughs> MEX conference where you think, you know, either I have created something magical and beautiful here, or, you know, I'm going to be dealing with <laughs> a pretty serious cleanup operation at the end of this.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, the, 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 the fabulous disasters, right? Yeah, you need to have those and you need to celebrate disaster. We, uh, we, have, a, we have the wall of fame, and, and which is at the same time wall of shame in the space we've created now. So the, the major fuck ups, those are immortalized. Maybe there's a picture or there is a little story on the wall and there's a big cork wall. I, I actually glued the cork myself uh, with, with one of the other guys. And, uh, and then we have these things which are the reminder of the times where we really had a big disaster. And, and it's good, it's good because if you can laugh about yourself,
0: you're already a step ahead. You know what I mean? Uh, Absolutely. You know, and I think each time you have an experience like that and you realize, you know what, in the moment it was hectic, it was stressful, but look at everything we have learned from that and look at where it enabled us to get Every time you embrace that, it becomes easier to do those things and to push to be a little more creative, a little more experimental in the future. You you start to familiarize yourself with it in a way that uh, it no longer seems so scary. Yeah. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> uh, so, so Massimo, I think we are um, sadly coming to the the end of our time for this conversation. But there's one thing I always like to to ask guests on the show before we finish the, the discussion uh, is to think a little bit about the, the future. Um, So perhaps more than many of our guests, you have had the chance to work in all sorts of diverse roles, all sorts of different locations around the world. But is there something that you haven't yet had the chance to work on, which you'd really like to take on the challenge of before your career is done?
1: I'm on the waiting list for the Mars mission. Uh, So that's one thing I haven't done yet. But there are so many other things I haven't done, which are much more simple. For example, I've never made ice cream myself. Well, that so... sounds
0: like a workshop activity waiting to happen.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, And it would be fun, actually, to make your own ice cream, isn't it?
0: I, I can speak from firsthand experience, actually. Um, oh, yeah? My, my partner, perhaps in a case of slight vested interest, bought me an ice cream making kit for my birthday some years ago and uh i have got into a little experimentation with it and i must say it's it's both therapeutic and has delicious results when it goes right aha
1: uh-huh. what's your favorite flavor
0: uh, so Personally, I I veer more towards the kind of chocolate and peanut butter and sort of caramel sort of flavors. Um, But also in the summer, you know, we're able to grow um, quite a lot of our own uh, fruit here in in where I live in the UK in a fairly rural area. So often we'll find that, you know, if we have a good crop of strawberries or raspberries, uh, we're able to, to use those to make flavors as well. So it depends a little on the time of year. But since we're coming out of what's been a particularly cold winter in this part of the UK this year, we've had quite a lot oh, in the yeah, way of disaster. those sort of uh, warm kind of caramelly flavors going on in the ice cream.
1: Mm. <laughs> yeah, in, g- in general, whatever you can do with your hands is so rewarding, especially if you can eat it afterwards, right? Uh, I, I don't, I don't. It's like good, a win-win, but whatever I cook and doesn't always come out in the same way, of course,
0: <laughs>
1: because of the same experimentation flair, you know, but uh, but anyway, even if it doesn't taste good, you feel good because you made it.
0: Absolutely. Well, I think you've left us all with some ideas for what we could do as a next workshop at MEX or within your company, or perhaps, you know, for some of the listeners as well, they'll now be inspired to uh, bring some ice cream or some Lego into their next creative session. So look, Massimo, thank you very much indeed for taking the time to to share all of that it's been wonderful having the opportunity to talk and oh, thank i you. hope we'll be able to catch up with you again in a, a future edition of the show
1: oh yeah sure and maybe in one of the events as well yeah excellent thanks a lot and uh, wish a fantastic day
0: so what did you think of all that I've got to say, I took the interview with Massimo mainly because he was introduced to me by Patrizia and she rarely makes a bad intro, but I was really blown away by the degree to which he's using quite brave methods, you know, shoestring budgets, teams of very different people, partnerships with new types of companies to bring innovation to a big company in a meaningful way. And we talked about lots of different reference points and projects within that discussion. And if you want to follow up on any of those then you can just head over to the show notes, which accompany this episode of the podcast. Uh, It's at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section, and you'll find links to all of that stuff that Massimo and I mentioned. Now, I also promised to give you an update on some things that you can get involved with in the MEX community. So let's start with the dining club. Uh, Every six weeks or so, we have a dinner where we bring together a bunch of people who, just like you, share an interest in customer-centered experience design. They're totally informal. You know, There's no presentations or anything like that. It's just a chance to get together with some of the other people who listen to the podcast or have been guests on the podcast uh, or are just doing interesting things in this field and are somehow involved in the MEX network and MEX community. We've had three of them so far this year, and the fourth is going to be on the 20th of June in London. And if you'd like to get an invite with all of the details, just drop me a line by email. The email address is mobileuserexperience.com and I'll come back to you. Now, we keep it to 12 people at each one. We found that's about the right number for a sort of relaxed atmosphere on the night. Uh, So you do need to be pretty quick to confirm a seat, uh, but I can also make sure that I add you to the list so that you're first to know about future events too, if it managed to bag a seat at the next one. Now, also, as you know, we have been running the MEX jobs board for about a year now, and that's been doing great. We've had some really interesting roles posted by companies who share the user-centered design values of the MEX community. And it's been a pleasure to connect them with all of the talented people like you who listen to this podcast. Uh, and if you're hiring or you're looking, you can check out all of that at mobileuserexperience.com slash jobs but we're also introducing something new based on some ideas that we've been evolving with the community and i'm not really sure what we're going to end up calling it yet but for now let's just say it's it's a bit like a mech's lonely hearts column so one of the real virtues of this community that has formed around x over the 14 or so years that we've been running the initiative is the depth of talented people that it reaches um, and we also know that talented people do their best work when they find companies that are truly a match for their interests. So, Mech's Lonely Hearts, Hidden Talents, I really don't know what we should call this thing, you're welcome to send in suggestions by email, um, is exactly that. It's an inverse jobs board, if you like, where talented practitioners like you can share in complete confidence the kind of role they're looking for and the skills that they have. Uh, And I'll post those up as anonymous descriptions on the various MEX channels. Uh, And if you're hiring and they sound like the sort of person that you'd like to meet, you can drop me an email and I will make a personal intro for you if it's appropriate. Um, Again, all done in complete confidence. Um, So we've got a couple of great hidden talents out there already. One of them is... An anthropologist by background uh, who's got experience of both quantitative and qualitative user research, and they're particularly interested in helping companies that really want to supercharge the way they empathize with their customers. Uh, The other is a product strategist, 11 years of experience working with corporate innovation teams, but also with a particular skill in helping startups uh, and they're able to help with things like design research, proposition validation, prototyping, uh, and building out long-term teams uh, to handle customer insight within the company. They're based in London, uh, but they're open to working globally uh, and especially if it's for companies which are interested in stuff in lower income economies uh, and they're open to doing that fixed term, freelance roles, you know one to, to three month kind of durations. So if either of those people sound like the sort of talent that you'd be interested in having on your team, do get in touch with me uh, and I can talk you through how I can make that introduction for you. Uh, and if you're looking for your next role and you want to get the word out about your talents in complete confidence through our next channels, including this podcast, um, also get in touch and I'll see what I can do to spread the word. Of course, I should emphasize this is all a bit of an experiment. Uh, I'm not going to make intros if I don't think they're good intentions on both sides, but you know, nor is this a recruitment service where I'm going to be the middleman facilitating the hiring process. It's just an extension of something that I've already done with many of you over the years, connecting like-minded people who I think should know each other, uh, and then getting out of the way and hoping that by establishing that connection, something good comes out of it for the whole community. So there it is, uh, Mech's Hidden Talents. Um, do drop me a line and uh, and let me know if I can help with that. Um, so I think that's it for this edition. But don't forget to keep spreading the word about the podcast. Um, just send the link to mobileuserexperience.com across to someone who you think might enjoy it. And I'll be back again soon with another episode. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.